there are certain things that need to be dealt at the local level. And even though it makes sense financially to centralize it, but in practicality, it does not work because more and more of the consumers, they want answers now right here. Welcome to Inside Reproductive Health, the shop talk of the fertility field. Here, you'll hear authentic and unscripted conversations about practice management, patient relations, and business development from the most forward-thinking experts in our field. Wall Street and Silicon Valley both want your patience, but there is a plan if you are willing to take action. Visit fertilitybridge.com to learn about the first piece of building a fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Now, here's the founder of Fertility Bridge and the host of Inside Reproductive Health, Griffin Jones. On this episode of Inside Reproductive Health, I'm back with Dr. Francisco Arredondo. You may have heard my original podcast episode with Dr. Arredondo earlier in 2020, where we talked about how doctors are entrepreneurs and his philosophy, and that is expressed in his book, Medicalpreneur that will be coming out in the future. But I ended up getting into a second conversation with Paco and I wanted to explore this more. So I made it into two different podcast episodes. You don't need to listen to part one in order to be able to listen to this one. But in this episode, we talk about private equity coming into the field with Dr. Arundundo's experience with that, what he sees are pros and cons and what he would issue in terms of reflection for the rest of the field regarding private equity, venture capital, and a lot of this money coming into the fertility field. So Dr. Arredondo, let's talk about the money that's coming into the fertility field. I've sat with people who are the most consummate of professionals, but when we start talking about what other people are doing and what other people are, are, are making, it's amazing how people start to shift their focus to, I want that and I want to have that too. And uh, for myself, I just, I always try to remind myself that if you are lower middle class in the United States of America in 2020, if you're lower middle class in the United States of America in 2020, by the standards of the world today, and by the standards of virtually all of human history, you are exorbitantly wealthy. And there's mm -hmm. something to be, to be said for maintaining that for a while while you build your nest egg. Um, correct. But I think now, especially, there has been a lot of money that has entered the field that the fear of missing out comes into play. And so what do you think of the, the entry of, of different capital into our field, whether it's public markets or private equity or venture capital? What's, what's your initial impression? And then we'll start to unpack well, it. I, I think that, uh, again, physicians will benefit by learning from other spaces and learning about efficiency and uh, all this. And uh, I don't agree with the narrative that sometimes the, the certain private equity and certain management firms come in with uh, saying that, oh, you know, you're such a bad uh, physician that uh, we're going to help you to be more efficient in this. And let me tell you in a stop right there why it's a little bit tricky. If you grab any business in the U.S., that is 100 businesses that are open today, by one year, 30% have closed. By three years, 50% have closed. By five years, 70% have closed. Okay? 
if you grab any physician office, the great majority, 90% will be open in 10 years. So after all, physicians not, are not that business people. What has happened is that our profits are so generous that we give ourselves a little bit of relax on not being that efficient. And yes, we can certainly learn from these companies. And these companies also should know that they should learn from us, physicians. So it has to be a true team effort from the private equity, the management first, and the physician. And it has to have those elements of the five H's that I told you, that everybody should be humble and should be hungry and should be uh, happy and not be in a position of, I am your boss, because physicians will never be, let themselves be managed, period. Physicians are independent. They went 15 years of uh, school after high school, this kind of physicians. And a person that is 40 years of age that has very little experience in the field, in the field and perhaps in life, is not going to tell you how to do things. The great majority of physicians will say that. However, there's a lot of things that you can learn from that 40-year young. But that person or that group of persons need to understand that they also have a lot to learn from physicians. So it's like usual, a team effort. Uh, that's one point. The second point is that when the money comes in, and especially private equity, they, they need to make the money every seven years or five to eight years or whatever that they have to get their money. So the focus is obviously to become much more efficient, to gain market and to basically uh, be able to sell it in five to seven years so they can make a margin. Well, then they put in the physicians in some of these groups are not part of the leadership for making decisions. And that is a problem. And I do see it as a big problem because uh, somebody, was, uh, somebody was telling me, oh, no, but, you know, this group of people, they have been the best in uh, 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 healthcare, in, uh, uh, in laboratories, and in, in this, in the radiology, and this, and, you know, and now they're going to uh, apply the exercise into your field. <laughs> and I always put the, uh, the example of, uh, I think I mentioned this to you, of um, uh, Phil Jackson, the, uh, the, the, the coach of the, uh, of the Bulls, uh, of Chicago Bulls in the 80s. And uh, he had four group of coaches, all of them NBA players. And those five, their winning rate with the Chicago Bulls, with the, uh, uh, Michael Jordan there, was approximately 80%. There has been no other coaching team in the history as good and as efficient as that. They know they are so smart. Well, let's grab them and put them to train the Yankees or the Dallas Cowboys. It's just another sport. <laughs> they are not going to be champions in the first year. I'll tell you that, not in the second year or third year. Because even though they are the best at basketball, the guy that sells the peanuts on the baseball is different. The guy that creates the incentives uh, on the football team for the uh, players is totally different. There's going to be a learning curve. Yes, Phil Jackson is super smart. And in five years or seven years, he might become, uh, you know, uh, in the Super Bowl, uh, the coach. 
but it's going to take time. And in order to get there, he probably listened to a lot of the players in the team. If he is smart, he will listen and uh, will be humble to know that he could learn from those players. So it, the same is happening here, that they are jumping from one specialty to the other one. And they think that just because they were good in one specialty, they can apply the same techniques to uh, this other specialty. If you are the CEO of a uh, wine company, and now you become the CEO of a soda company, even though both are beverages, they're totally different. The markets, the structures, the incentives, totally different. Our industries in the United States, the sub-industries are so large that each one requires certain specific knowledge that we talk about. Yes, you could have the general understanding, but you need a little bit of the specific knowledge. So I think their argument would be, okay, Paco, we're bringing the general knowledge and then we're hiring people with the specific knowledge to be our chief medical officer. And, uh, and I'm not talking about any one group because mm -hmm. the, sure. the narrative is similar in, the, in that they say, we're not, we're not influencing operations. The concern from clinicians is they're going to, they're going to influence cl clinical operations. And the response is we are not influencing clinical operations. We're influencing business operations. But even as someone as myself, as a consultant, as we start to advance just beyond marketing consultant, the more we consult, mm -hmm. there, there is an overlap. Where mm -hmm. It's like we're starting to consult people. It's like, well, we're consulting people on business, but it does affect yep. what they do clinically. And I can't tell a physician what to do. I can what only present do. it. But a, but a private equity person could if they own a piece of their company. Mm -hmm. And so is, talk a little bit about that. Yeah, there's actually a couple of articles that will respond to that. One of them it is a Harvard Business Review article from a couple of years ago that it says uh, why the... Uh, the best hospitals in the world are managed by doctors. And if you think about it, uh, Mayo Clinic, Cleveland Clinic, John Hopkins that consistently are on the three uh, uh, tiers of best uh, organizations in the world from inception are managed by doctors. And why? Because you require credibility. Remember what I told you about um, you're thinking of credibility. Yeah. Um, so, uh, correct. I will tell you about trust. You know, uh, physicians only trust physicians in a lot of ways. So, uh, if a physician comes, a physician that has walked the walk, uh, it, it has more credibility, not only for the physicians, but also for outside stakeholders, patients, the uh, suppliers. You actually have a lot of uh, credibility to external uh, uh, stakeholders, future employees, uh, the pharmaceutical industry, donors, a lot of other people you will have credibility because um, what happens is that if the other article is something that it was uh, uh, talk about private equity in healthcare during the COVID era, uh, it was in Bloomberg Business Week, I think uh, uh, it was uh, in May of this year. And, and basically what it says is that, yes, in theory, it sounds nice that obviously private equity should not interfere with the daily decisions. But when their only focus is to make money and their duty is to provide care, 
Then it happens that physicians are serving two masters, the patient and the money holders. So it's actually very hard to do that balance. And uh, as you well mentioned, uh, there are certain examples where they are putting the incentives of your services, of your salaries. Remember those physicians that we said that had $300,000 of debt? And they're putting them a carrot that if you do more of these procedures, you're going to get more. Mm-hmm. So the way you actually incentivize, it may be against the patient's first interest. I have to emphasize that not everybody, every company does it, this, and not every private equity thinks that way. Uh, it, it must be uh, clarified, but you can see that there is an inherent conflict of interest by you as a physician having the patient as your first master, and then we have another master. So that's why I say, unless the physicians play a role in the boards, in the management, embryologists in our field, embryologists, nurses, play a role in the management team. Uh, because in the other article that I mentioned about uh, the uh, uh, harbor of the hospitals, there is good evidence that when you separate the clinical and the administrative in like two silos, actually the quality of the markers in the hospital goes down. Mm-hmm. Those two silos need to be in constant talk and even more in constant interaction. And sometimes they ought to be the same. So uh, there is good evidence in companies that when you silo administration and clinical, the communication doesn't occur. That's one thing. The third thing or, uh, on the uh, private equity, which is, you know, it, it, the, the intentions are good. And that's why I, I would say that it's communication. The intentions are good, which is to become more efficient. The topic for the future is going to be that um, as we went to an era of globalization and we're going back to the middle where everybody is the same and we're going to centralize uh, accounting and we're going to centralize electronic medical records because that makes sense. It's more efficient. It, It makes perfect sense. The challenge of the conflict for the future is that more and more companies and more and more consumers want something local, want something much more local. So private equities management firms and physicians need to ask the question, yes, we're going to become more efficient and more centralized in what? Perhaps electronic medical records, perhaps in accounting, but what it is working at the local level, keep it as it is. Uh, you know, I was uh, talking to another industry. I was talking to uh, one of the differences between uh, private equity firms in Sweden and in the United States. I was talking to a friend that uh, has a big company, not in medicine, but it was acquired by a Swedish company that it is uh, in the stock market in Sweden. And they have companies Swedish throughout the world. And they said, the only thing we want you to centralize is the accounting. I want you to do this accounting with this system. You're going to have these people but the reason I'm buying you is because you're doing things so well, otherwise I wouldn't buy you. <laughs> and so we want you to continue doing exactly the same thing you're doing. The only thing we're gonna do is going to make it efficient at this level. And we're gonna help you with connections and this and that. 
But what is happening sometimes, especially in the, because there's two groups in, in our uh, field of, of medicine, the one that are working by acquisitions and the one that are growing organically. The ones that are working by acquisitions have the challenge that they have to merge cultures and that yes. is very difficult to do. Yep. You, it is, if not impossible to do, it's very difficult to do. Why is it? Let's, let's, let's stop on this for a second, Paco. Why is no. it so hard to well, I gave a cultures? talk about this because the set of values are different. And uh, um, it's actually the number one reason why mergers or acquisitions do not work uh, is because of different cultures. It has nothing to do with the finances. And what happens in a lot of these mergers, the people start focusing immediately into the finances and all this. And they don't talk about, hey, how do you do decisions? Oh, we do decisions this way. Oh, you know, in this particular company, the lower level person has a lot of input and this one does not. And if I'm the acquirer, I'm going to make the other one like that. Boom. That's, that's a recipe for disaster. So in our field of medicine, in the acquisition groups, what happens is that they want to impose sometimes, not always, but sometimes, and make efficient everything, everything, everything to be efficient. But there are certain things that need to be dealt at the local level. And even though it makes sense financially to centralize it, but in practicality, it does not work because more and more of the consumers, they want answers now right here. They don't want to be in a phone with a 1-800 number. They want to see a face more and more the local mentality is changing the way we do business. And cultures is, is, is a big part of that because let me tell you an example. Whenever we generated companies here in Texas, we generated a company in Austin, San Antonio, and then McAllen. What I learned from that was that the, even though it's Texas, the three cities, the three cultures are totally different. And I learned it the, the hard way because my mentality was to standardize everything and all that. But I actually learned that from here to Austin, which is 72 miles, you might as well ask for a passport in New Braunfels, my friend, because it's a total different culture. The needs, not that one is better than the other one. It's just different, just like cultures. There's no one better than the other. It's yeah. just different. And you have to cater to those needs. Uh, even how I, I was dressed, you know, when I went to uh, Austin to, give consultation, I had to have a different attire than if I give consultation in San Antonio. Different culture. So what about the response that I think private equity would have of saying, yeah, we're, we're just going to worry about the accounting and we're, we're going, mm -hmm. you can make whatever local decisions you want. Why doesn't that end up playing out in real life? Uh, I, I, I think that because that will not give you the level of efficiency that you're looking in order to have your good margins. Uh, think about this. In healthcare in the United States, uh, the marker that we use to see the efficiency of a company is the EBITDA, the earnings uh, before interest, taxes, depreciation, and appreciation. And in healthcare overall, it's 10 to 15%. Uh, the biggest industries that have uh, things like, you know, much more EBITDA is real estate and oil companies and other things. But in healthcare, it's 10 to 50. So 
in our industry, infertility is a little bit more generous than that. And that's why more and more private equity want to enter into our field because the EBITDAs are, are a little bit bigger than that. And, and what happens is that um, if you focus only on make it uh, efficient uh, two or three layers, your uh, ability to turn around the company is going to be less. And the people, what I have read lately and what I've learned lately is that a lot of the private equity that have entered into healthcare uh, were very successful in the first flip of the company because there was a big chunk of efficiencies that, as I mentioned, physicians uh, will benefit from that. There's no question that we could be more efficient. And there's no question that certain uh, management companies and private equity companies have done it before. But after they do that, when they go to the second, they are having trouble getting the, the second acquisition, uh, the, 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 the shrinking of the, uh, uh, of the fat, if you may. And then when they start growing, because that's the only way to really position in the market, then they enter into the challenge of the cultural differences. Uh, if you grow organically, obviously it's going to be much more slow, the growth, but you have much more control because you infuse the culture that you want. And again, you have to adapt it. Think about this. Even if you go in a company that is totally efficient, McDonald's, Starbucks, any of that, you go to McDonald's here in San Antonio and you can find a burger with chorizo con huevo and you go another place and you don't find it. They even adapt to the local market. Mm-hmm. Uh, they find, you find in this area things in the menu that are spicy and you go in the north uh, or northeast and you don't find that. I was in Nova Scotia, Canada and they had the Mick Lobster or something. There you go. So I, we don't have any taxes, my friend. So, so even those companies have learned to make it local. They're little by little, make it local. Uh, and this is the big disadvantage that uh, Budweiser and uh, Bush will have with a local uh, boutique draft beer that is done in your market. You know, they will always be, you know, they can compete with that because that is such a flavor, such a local perception that to the people that they like those flavors, you put a Budweiser in front of them, it's not going to work. Yeah. Now, the challenge that those craft beers happen is when they start growing, that they lose their power because now they're big. They cannot claim the same thing. Let me give you an example. You know, the best uh, advertising in TV in the whole history is claimed to be the 1984 Super Bowl uh, commercial of Apple where that woman throws everything to the uh, uh, screen where they're putting the 1984 movie. uh, And because Apple is the underdog against IBM, the big thing. I think that Apple cannot do that ad today (laughs) because now they are IBM. Right. You know, (laughs) so when you, that is a technique uh, that has to be adapted as you grow, you know. And what is happening, a lot of these companies were small and boutique and this, and now they are part of a McDonald's. So the appealing... But they even have a, a harder brand challenge than a McDonald's, I think, because instead yeah. of 
instead of it being McDonald's in Cincinnati, McDonald's in Chicago, McDonald's in Los Angeles, it depends on which network it is, but very often it is yeah. uh, this restaurant in small print brought to you by McDonald's. You know, it depends on Correct. which fertility network we're talking about, but if they're going for the benefit of scale, then they're losing the local advantage. If they're trying to keep the local yeah. advantage, then they can't, then they don't get any marketing at, at scale. Um, yeah. And so, so they, I, they ended up, how, how is that saying in English that you end up without the goat and the rope or the rope, neither the rope, neither the goat? The worst, <laughs> the worst of both worlds would often yeah. be the, the expression one, yeah. one might use for that. So a, a branding expert will tell you that is a recipe for disaster because you are not here nor there. You're giving mixed messages. Who are you? Are this one or that one? All the branding, you know, and obviously you, you, you are into that, my friend. You're the, the, the expert on this. It will tell you that when you're sending mixed messages, it's confusing for the consumer. Okay, so here's the skinny. Just as your fertility group has advantages over other groups, your competitors also possess advantages over your IVF center that you don't have access to yet. Now you can say their consolidation model won't work or their lab sucks or their doctor's crazy or that low cost model cuts quality or who would ever get their fertility testing done from a food truck, but many of them are onto something. If you're not maximizing your own natural strengths and adapting to what the new patient demographic is demanding, then they start to do more cycles where you are, get better rates from insurance and vendors, take your patients and even your staff. We work to maximize those competitive advantages because Fertility Bridge is the only creative and business development firm that exclusively subspecializes in the fertility field. We have an entire team of people who help fertility centers attract and retain the right patients and nothing else for a living. So we can help only your competitors and then they have an even bigger advantage or we can help you too. Our initial consulting engagement is the goal in competitive diagnostic. It's only $5.97 and we equip your partners and leadership with the foundation to leverage your competitive strengths, not mimicking someone else and not let your competitors have an unfair advantage. There's no long-term commitment whatsoever and there's a 100% money back guarantee. Send your manager to fertilitybridge.com, have them sign up for the goal in competitive diagnostic and I will see you and your partners on Zoom. So we've mostly talked about private equity, which is money held either by firms mm -hmm. or sometimes high net worth individuals. We're also starting to see in the field groups being listed on public markets. I'm starting to see a pattern of larger groups that merge with an, an, an international group in some other country, country, and then they list on an international market. Do you have any opinions on, is, is there a difference in that between uh, these operational consequences that you've talked about where, where it happens with private equity versus listing on a public stock market? Do you have any opinions or insights on that? Well, what I can tell you is uh, we've seen it with one company in the United States that it was private, then went public, then went private, and it fell apart. So uh, uh, what I can tell you from some of the examples that are from the international that have come to acquire things here nationally. Uh, I think that one of those companies really learned their way because I'm familiar with people uh, that bought uh, some of that in, in, in South America and other places where they began this uh, journey of fertility 
and they learn a lot there. So actually, they have had 10 years of experience in fertility now, and they came to the U.S. now to acquire. So yes, they will have to learn the U.S. market, but I think that they actually uh, learn a lot in, in other markets. So uh, I think that they are going to be doing a little bit better. Uh, but, you know, it's going to be very uh, uh, interesting to see what happens with uh, COVID because uh, a lot of the uh, cash flow was stopped and a lot of these companies distribute basically the money right away, uh, which is different than when it's a small business company uh, where people tend to keep cash for the operating expenses for several months as reserve. And here it was not because everything was distributed right away. So uh, I think it's going, and this is going to impact, I would say, my prediction is going to impact morale because a lot of people that were working for 20, 30 years were put in furlough and were fired. And because obviously they had no cash flow coming in, unfortunately. And what happens is that a lot of the nursing staff, which it's very hard for us to find nursing in our fertility industry. Uh, what happens is that they left and those nurses got jobs right away in healthcare because there's a shortage of nursing. But now that you are revamping again the industry and you want them to bring them back, most likely they're going to tell you, no, my friend, you didn't support me when I was in uh, really dire straits here. And uh, I don't want to go back to that. So we already had a shortage of human capital in fertility industry, beginning with doctors, which are probably the only ones that are going to be a little bit easier to obtain. Uh, because we have a limited sample of physicians, 35 to 40 physicians a year for 350 million people. So, but nursing, which basically, you know this, the heart of our operations are the nurses. They are really the heart of the operations. Yes, physicians, we do the transfer, we do the, but the heart, the big work is done by nurses. And some of these nurses were per and for long were actually yeah. fired. So, and it takes a good nurse that has zero knowledge of fertility, a good six months to a year to become proficient. It's a long investment. So what are some of the benefits then, Pavel? Or, or do you think there can be a benefit in terms of some physicians getting what in other industries is sometimes called FU money? And I've been in a <laughs> meeting where... I, we were t there was a seven doctor group and uh, I, we were talking with, and I could see them kicking this idea over and uh, the, the deal was, was good and they were interested and uh, they were also conflicted for many of the reasons you said. And ultimately, I think they ended up going with it because they decided, mm -hmm. you know what, we'll, we'll do this for our five, for our five year earn out. And if we want, we can come back and do whatever we want, essentially, mm -hmm. because they would have the capital to do that. And someone that, that you and I both like at, at a mention that you you at a meeting that you and I were at earlier this year had mentioned, you know, there there are potential downsides for for the for the younger partners, but there could be mm -hmm. upsides for the younger partners and that they could get a big 
upside now and and they could get more later so what do you think are the are are the upsides of of physicians being able to cash out well i think uh, uh, it's always important to align the interest of everyone if you don't align the interest of everyone and you just give lip service that yes everybody's going to benefit and this but if you truly do not align the interest of investors, physicians, team members, and patients, and sacrifice some of your profits in one of those in, in, in those levels and share it proportionally, uh, I think that is going to be successful. Now, is that easy to do? Absolutely not. It is not easy to do. Uh, to design a system like that, especially if you are acquiring organizations that already have certain patterns of behavior. You may be much more successful on aligning all those interests in the nobles, because then you are going to get the right team members from the beginning. So that's one point. The... Um, Second point that I would I will say on that is that to align them, there's a lot of intangibles. It's not only the money, it's the decision-making. So physicians enter into this to make decisions and to the great majority of physicians enter into this to help the patient, to make decisions. And when this get disaligned, they get the morale is very low. So for the young physicians, I think if they start to request and not only request or demand, but that they actually include themselves by preparing themselves in the business set and participate and be willing and wanting to participate more in the decision making, uh, I think that that is what will benefit to physicians, to private equity, uh, to employees and to patients. Uh, because whether we like it or not, this plane of a medical office or a hospital cannot fly without pilots. And the pilots are the doctors. Uh, it's something that you can't. As, as you were talking about aligning interests, I've thought about other things that you've talked about because you've talked about implementing personality tests in your, when, when you ran your practice. And I wonder if you ever combined those two. When you were doing negotiations with buyers, did you ever have them do personality tests? Because I could see that as being, uh, if someone is thinking about this, they might be interested in doing that. We did actually with new employees. And there was a time that we simplify the questions and we put them with the patients because then you're dealing with two types of personalities in, the, in, the, in a couple. They have different personalities. So the way you express this patient might capture 100% of what you said, but this one only 50. And so you have to be able to care for both. And so we used it, we used it to identify personalities and how the wording was going to be done uh, from the physician to the patient, from the nurse to the physician, and from the financial 
uh, advisory to the uh, patients, yeah. I think it could be a good idea for doctors considering selling equity of their practice to do personality tests with the the prospective buyer. And one thing I might look for <laughs> is agreeableness. And yeah. if someone is, if you do the big five personality test, for it's called big five. That's one. Yeah, yeah. I remember you all use Myers-Briggs, but big five, for example, I might look for someone who, I, I might look at their agreeability index. And yeah. Too low on agreeableness. It might not be a good fit. That's why I think I'm such a good guy to do business with because I'm just on the agreeable side of the spectrum. <laughs> I'm, I'm 54. I'm agreeable 54% of the time, which means that I want to make sure that the person I'm doing business with gets theirs. Yes, but I'm also yes. not going to. I'm also not going to be shy in advocating yeah, yeah. for mine, which is why I think I'm such a great right. business guy in my not so humble opinion. But uh, so, Paco, I've had such a good time talking with you. Let's conclude with your thoughts on private equity, public markets, venture capital entering the, the field, the implications of that and, and what physicians and practice owners should consider. So on the, uh, on the relationship between uh, external money coming into medicine and external knowledge, it's not only the money, but the knowledge coming into medicine, I think the fundamental thing should be that because the money that comes in put the physician in a difficult position of serving the patient and the stakeholders, the only way to solve this problem is by, in every single decision, aligning all the interests of the investors, the physicians, the team members, and the patients. And that is not easily done without the major input and major decision-making of each of those four elements. And it cannot be a vertical implementation. It has to be a horizontal, where all these elements have some say in how you design the company. The patients, the team members, the doctors, and the private equity. Dr. Francisco Raridondo, Paco, thank you so much yeah. for coming on Inside Reproductive Health. You've been listening to the Inside Reproductive Health Podcast with Griffin Jones. If you're ready to take action to make sure that your practice thrives beyond the revolutionary changes that are happening in our field and in society, visit fertilitybridge.com to begin the first piece of the fertility marketing system, the goal and competitive diagnostic. Thank you for listening to Inside Reproductive Health.